You are listening. You are listening. You are listening to the Fly Fishing ninety seven podcast. Absolutely. So, my fly tying bench is it. I've got a big glass window in the front of my house that looks north over town, and I can see the Grand Teton and whatnot. And so the view is very therapeutic to me, and it's a very relaxing situation. And so what I like to do, especially in the winter months when it gets dark early, is sit down at the bench, uh, get your, your, your light on the, on the fly, and just sit here and experiment with some different things. And you know, once I come up with a streamer pattern that I like, and I think that I'm doing it right, then just bust out a bunch of them at the same, you know, all, all at once and make minor variations to them. And I, and I always look forward to fishing them, you know, the next season and see what works. And uh, this last year I had some fun with a, a sex dungeon variation that really worked well for me. And so this winter I'm looking forward to getting back to that and trying some subtle variations on that and, and see what I could do with it. Tell you what, David, that sounds a lot better. I'm sitting in my tying room talking with you, and I'm looking at pegboard and marabou and all kinds of, you know, materials. But uh, actually, seeing, <laughs> I like the idea of seeing the Teton in the background. That sounds amazing, man. You you took me right there. Welcome to the Fly Fishing '97 podcast, featuring interviews with passionate people within the fly fishing industry. We focus on guides, conservation, resort managers gear, and talented fly tires bringing usable information to fly fishers. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by The Fly Crate. Theflycrate.com is your source for all things fly fishing. The Fly Crate offers a monthly fly club. We select patterns every month for your home waters. With membership, you'll receive flies created to match the hatch in your area, along with the Fly Crate's guide magazine, the convenience of having flies delivered right to your door, some sweet stickers. Discover new patterns and start stocking your fly boxes now. Theflycrate.com Here's your host, Mark Hopley. Welcome to this edition of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Very happy you chose to join us this time around. And we're going to head out to a beautiful part of the world. We're going to head out to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. We have on the line David DeFazio, co-founder of Wyoming Whiskey, avid fly fisherman. And uh, he's an attorney turned whiskey man and I know chases a lot of fins in Wyoming and beyond. David, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Happy to be here. Really excited to talk about fishing and whiskey. I can tell you that. I think it's two things we can cover a lot of ground on. I'm excited. Thanks for doing it. So let's start at the beginning. I always like on the show to kind of figure out where you got your passion for fly fishing. So let's take it back through your kind of fly fishing history, if you will. Where did it uh, all start for you? It started when I was five, actually. Um, I lived in Erie, Pennsylvania, outside of Erie, Pennsylvania, and I lived right next door to my grandfather. And my grandfather, Frank DeFazio, and I were best friends. Uh, and I, I think very fondly back on that. And, of course, he taught me how to spin fish first, but he fly fished a little bit, and he wanted to introduce me to it. And the next thing I knew, I was casting hand-tied, uh, bright blue hand, uh, flies <laughs> to bluegill in the pond that was between our houses. And so that was really, that was the very beginning of my fly fishing career. And 
you know, as you can imagine, a five-year-old is too thrilled, you know, to be do, to be fly fishing, and especially when spin fishing seemed to be easier and more productive. <laughs> right. And uh, I didn't really catch on to it, you know, at, at right away. Yeah. But I would say I started fly fishing in earnest probably when I was about. I don't know, in my early teens is wow. when it really started. You've been doing this a while. <laughs> um, yeah, probably not as probably not as much as some folks who are listening, but uh, I'd like to think I got started early. Well, you, you mentioned your, your grandfather kind of influencing you and getting you going. If you had to look back and kind of say, these people kind of mentored me or, or kind of helped me along the way, could you think of a few mentors when it comes to the fly fishing? Absolutely. Um, I would say that in college, uh, one of my mentors was my friend Mattson Rogers, who owns a fly shop in Emigrant, Montana. And uh, he, he, he and I definitely talked a bunch and we fished the super upstate New York streams around St. Lawrence University is where I went to college. And I would say he was one of the early influencers in my fly fishing career and then when i moved out to jackson he was here as well but mike jansen fletcher white uh matson and then all of the folks that kind of surrounded the local fly fishing community here um played a, a really major role in my development and you know you bring that current and brian schmidt you know is a buddy of mine who he and I fish all the time, and, and I would say is one of the greatest influences of my current fly fishing development. Hmm. Uh, I call him the scientist because he's a guy that says, trust the process. And uh, when you follow the process, it seems to work. So um, I would say, you know, jumping forward to now, he would probably be my, my biggest influence. I, it's funny you said you're from Erie originally, Pennsylvania. That must be a fishy city because I, I can't tell you we've had quite a few people on this podcast from erie uh, who have either lived there and, and pennsylvania is such a hot spot for fly fishing my grandfather i, I hold in the highest regard and I, I really wish uh he was still here as we all do with our grandparents but uh you know he he definitely got me into fishing and he would be the largest influence in my life and, uh, I got, I just wish he could come back even for just a day for me to show him, you know, what hmm. Jackson has to offer, what Wyoming has to offer, what Idaho has to offer, et cetera. And, uh, yeah, great memories when I think back to Erie. Was he a whiskey guy? Not necessarily. I know he, he drank whiskey, yeah. but I wouldn't say he was a connoisseur of it. Right. Um, he drank wine more than anything. He was, uh, he was an Italian guy who, really appreciated wine. He made his own wine and had his own label that he, he had developed and he gave, I, I'll never forget. We walked into the dentist one day and he handed the, the dentist two bottles of wine that he had made in, a, in brown paper bags and the dentist didn't charge him anything. <laughs> and uh, I was like, Oh, so this is how this works. So, so he was much more of a wine guy yeah. than he was a whiskey guy. from my recollection at this point, though, fermentation is in your DNA by the sounds of it. <laughs> Let's. Yeah, I've come to realize that. Well, 
we'll talk about your journey with uh, Wyoming whiskey and where you guys are at today and how this came to be. First, I want to take a, a few moments to get to know your day to day. You ready for a few random questions that might not have a lot to do with fly fishing? Throw it at me. All right, let's talk tunes, David. So when you're headed to your favorite stretch, uh, you're in your truck driving down to the river. What is playing in the stereo? That's a great question. I don't know if I would have one necessarily go-to band or song, uh, but it would depend on my mood. It would either be something on the heavier classic side, like some heavy Led Zeppelin or Van Halen, or completely different. I am a huge fan of female pop vocalists and, uh, it probably would not be odd to have me listening to some Rihanna or some Taylor Swift. Nice. You're mixing it up a little bit over there. I like it. Um, Yep. Let's talk about patterns. So um, this is a big question, but more often than not, is there a, you know, whether it's a streamer or a nymph, a dry, is there a certain pattern that you cannot do without? I would, uh, that I cannot do without. Yes. I mean, especially this last year, there's been a streamer pattern that has been working so well out here called, I'm sure you're familiar with the Goldie. Mm-hmm. Um, the Goldie has been, without question, the most productive streamer that I've had in my box this year. Uh, in the past, it's been Sculptzilla. It's been, um, you know, similar flies. I, I like the articulated bugs because of the action that it has in the water and, and the particular materials that are on them. So I would say on the on the wet side it's that, on the dry fly side, you know it's got to be some sort of Chernobyl ant mm. pattern that is you know that year's pattern that just seems to be working in whatever color it is. You know there was a, a very uh, there was a pink bodied ant that I was using this year that seemed to be working better than others. Hmm. Now, do you tie your own patterns? I'm sitting in my fly bench right now because I figured that would be appropriate. <laughs> and I tie streamers and I've, I'm, I'm learning. I, I can't say that I'm a master at this. I, I would say that I'm a beginner to intermediate streamer tire, but my goal this winter is to get into small drives because in my opinion, I think that if you could tie an excellent small dry fly pattern, then that's the top of the game. Mm. Yeah. It's, it always amazes me how many of us that are passionate <clears throat> about fly fishing tie, but then there's a, there's a lot, there's a big cross section that don't tie at all. And you know, they're, they're buying most of their patterns, but for me, it really completes the circle, you know, especially when you're in a, you know, a place like Wyoming where you're going to see some snow in the winter, you kind of, you know, pull back from the rivers a little bit, obviously, because of the weather, and it gives you time at the vice. Is, is that kind of your experience? Absolutely. So my fly tying bench is, it. I've got a big glass window in the front of my house that looks north over town, and I can see the Grand Teton and whatnot, and so the view is very therapeutic to me, and it's a very relaxing situation. And so what I like to do, especially in the winter months when it gets dark early, is sit down at the bench, uh, get your 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 light on the on the fly, and just sit here and experiment with some different things. And you know, once I come up with a streamer pattern that I like, 
and I think that I'm doing it right than just bust out a bunch of them at the same, you know, all at once and make minor variations to them. And I, and I always look forward to fishing them, you know, the next season and see what works. And uh, this last year I had some fun with a, a sex dungeon variation that really worked well for me. And so this winter, I'm looking forward to getting back to that and trying some subtle variations on that and, and see what I could do with it. I'll tell you what, David, that sounds a lot better. I'm sitting in my tying room talking with you, and I'm looking at pegboard and marabou and all kinds of you know materials. But uh, actually, seeing, <laughs> I like the idea of seeing the Teton in the background. That sounds amazing. Man, you, you took me right there. Um, is there a place that you go to talk fly fishing. So where I go with this is like, so when you're not in your waders, but you need to get your fishing fix, like, is there a fly shop locally you frequent? Is there a brew pub? Uh, maybe it's a work, you know, uh, Wyoming whiskey. Where do you get your fix when you're not in your waders? I go to J- JD High Country Sports um, on the town square in Jackson. Uh, Sanchez is a guy that I go in there and shoot the bowl with and, and other folks in there that, you know, these guys are masters. And so I really, it's close to my office. So it's very easy for me to walk a block and a half over there and grab some fly tying materials and, you know, and catch up on, on what's going on. And, and Scott and I will visit about whatever's going on and we'll make fun of people and, you know, all of the stuff like that. And, um, I, that would be one spot, and the other would be out at Teton Village Sports, where again, where my buddy Brian manages, and I know all the guides there, and mm. yeah, you know, it's very comfortable in those settings for me. And it's not like I'm going in there and trying to pry information out of people. It's just a good open conversation about things and things that I could add to the conversation and share, and, and it comes back and. I would say both of those venues would be where I would go to. Sounds pretty good. I think it's so important to have that shop or kind of that, you know, whether it's a fly fishing club or wherever you choose to kind of get your fix. It's, um, I grew up working in a shop that was a hunting fishing store and I'll never forget that environment in there. It was just so much fun and there's a lot of kidding around, a lot of joking around and just kind of figuring out where people are catching fish and what they're hooking up on and, um, I think with COVID and that, you know, a lot of stuff's gone online, but man, we need to bring that brick and mortar back a little more. I think. I couldn't agree more. And you're talking to somebody who has suffered, uh, and I don't mean that to be dramatic, but I'm a very, very social person and I like the, the face-to-face interaction and it just means so much more to shake somebody's hand and look them in the eye and talk about whatever it could be. It could be fly fishing. It could be whiskey. It could be law. It can be, you name it. And that to me is just such a more real way of communication than doing something over a computer screen or a phone or an email or a text. It's just (laughs) the the depth of the conversation and the relationship is lost unless you're standing in front of somebody. So I couldn't agree with you more. Are you a big sports guy? Let's talk sports. Um, so if you're pulling for your favorite team, what, pro, college, or otherwise, are we talking football, hockey, basketball, baseball? Where do you get your fix in, in the world of sports? Well, you're talking to a very disappointed New York Yankees fan right now. Oh, and uh, so the Yankees are without question my, be my number one team that I follow and you're aware that they just completely choked 
and uh, I'm so disappointed. And so that, that hurts, but the Yankees would be my number one. I am a Pittsburgh Penguins fan, Mm -hmm. hockey wise. I am a university of Kentucky basketball fan. And when it comes to football, I don't, I don't, I'm not a big football fan all around. I prefer college football over pro. Yeah. And if you held a gun to my head and said, okay, pick a college team and pick a pro team, I would say the Los Angeles Rams on the pro level since I was a kid because I liked their helmet when I was really <laughs> young. And, and so I guess by default, I've always kind of followed them in a very distant way. And then at, at the college level, I guess I've always really enjoyed the the history of Notre Dame would be, you yeah. know, I, I always pay attention to how they're doing, what they're doing. Um, but beyond that, I, I would say my involvement with football would be social. I've got a lot of friends that are Pats fans yeah. and I'll go and sit with them and, you know, we'll drink beer and, and watch the Pats play. And I will quietly root against them probably because of my Yankees heritage and my anti-Boston uh, <laughs> sentiments. Here we, here we <laughs> go. You, yeah. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, so that's it. I would say Yankees, Penguins, yeah. and Kentucky Wildcats. Good stuff. Yeah. I, I feel you on the, and, uh, on the baseball playoffs this year. Cause I I'm, I'm a bit of a closet uh, blue Jays fan and, and we, same thing, man. I thought they were going to be right there, but uh, it's funny. It was so close this year. Have you ever seen a season where the, the pennant race was that tight? No. I mean, especially in the AL East. I mean, I, I think the AL East is really the pride of baseball, especially right now, because you've got four teams that any year could win it. And I'm, I guess I, I have to say it. I'm proud of the Red Sox in what they've been able to do when they, this season, when they really weren't expected to do anything. Hmm. And I thought the Blue Jays were going to be the upset team and they just, they fell just a little short. And to see the Tampa Bay Rays lose the other night, I was shocked. I, I didn't think that they could be beat, but uh, so, yeah, I, I would think the AL East right now is really the focus of, of the, at least the American league baseball scene. And, I wanted to add one more thing on what sports I follow. I'm a, an international soccer fan, and I definitely follow Manchester United and the United States men's national team. Yeah. Uh, I played soccer through college, and I would say that that sport as well, is that, that's as much – I'm as passionate about that as I am about the Yankees, and I'm really hoping that the, the United States can have a little better showing this time around for the World Cup. Well, you should be able to. I mean, it's pre- usually pretty talented. I, I don't know the team this year, but I'm qualifying's getting going right now, isn't it? Yep, but we're doing pretty well. We're, we're second in the CONCACAF, and the top three will make the World Cup, and then the fourth team has to play a playoff with uh, another team from another division that was in fourth in yeah. order to make it. But at, at this point, we're sitting right where we want to be. Have you seen Ted Lasso yet? Oh yeah. Shocking how good that show is. <laughs> Isn't it good? I love it. I love it. Um, let's, let's get back to the water. So I, I want to, what's the biggest lesson you've learned on your fly fishing journey so far, David? So if you kind of had to distill down and, and as a guy that knows all about distilling, distill it down to what it brings to your world, what does fly fishing do for you? I have always been 
I think a little, I, I've been way too amped up in most things that I do in my life. And in certain applications, that's a good thing. And in others, it's most definitely a bad thing. What fly fishing does for me, and I can't say it does it for me all the time because I still have issues with it, is it calms me. And it, it focuses me with a calmness that allows me to get done what I need to get done in the right way. And I, I'll give you an example. This last year, and this is, this is a, 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 maybe a strange example, but it really illustrates my point. I have gone over to the upper salmon to steelhead fish for the past few years. I couldn't go last year because of COVID, because everything shut down, and, and Sun Valley was at the epicenter of the beginning of COVID. But other than that, I've been heading over there and doing the spring uh, the spring scene. And, you know, steelhead fishing can be very difficult, but this last year I went over there, and due to a medical issue, I had to be on some painkillers when I went and fished. And a buddy of mine, Brandon went with me and which I needed or else I couldn't have driven over there. The long story short is I was taking a painkiller, which I had to, cause I was in excruciating pain mm. and it calmed me and it allowed me to fish in a way that it let things happen and play out in front of me when I might normally have been overreactive. Huh. And I had the most amazing steelheading two and a half days I've ever had in my life. I went seven for seven on fish and I, I landed every one that I saw and I casted to. And what that showed me was I got to calm the hell down because <laughs> I'm, I'm really, I'm pretty high strung. And a lot of that was knocked out of me when I moved from Albany, New York, which is my home to Jackson I'll never forget Mike Jansen slapped me one one time. He said, "You gotta you gotta calm down, man. Leave the East Coast behind." <laughs> and and I was like, "You're right, I do." But it's hard to let that go. Um, I'm, I'm I got a lot of energy, and a lot of times I find myself suffering on the stream because I'm too high strung. And what fly fishing does is it helps me bring that down. And it helps me relax. And that's the thing that I guess I take from fly fishing and try to apply it to other aspects of my life. That's really well verbalized. I can relate to that too. I can be a little high strung sometimes and it's hard to kind of just chill. But uh, yeah, that's that's a common denominator, I think, with, with a lot of us. Um, it, fill in the blank for me. When you're not fly fishing, you're usually doing what? Hunting, skiing, hiking straight uphill for exercise. <laughs> I would say those would be my recreational activities. Hiking straight uphill. Like, are we talking like, uh, yep. you know, um, are we talking ski kind of terrain? What kind of, are we just talking alpine hiking? It depends on the season. Hmm. So I, I live on Snow King Mountain, which is the small, smaller ski area here in Jackson. And so for me, my exercise is literally 
putting on my hiking shoes and walking right out my back door and going 1200 feet straight up and getting a great workout that way and bringing my dogs and, you know, mm. doing that in the summer and in the winter time, it's the similar thing, but I got my ski boots on and I'm boot packing up to ski down, which would be the preferred way down. And, you know, it gets great exercise for my dogs. It's great exercise for me and it transfers over into the ski season out at the, both in the back country, the side country at Jacksonville mountain resort, where, you know, there's a lot of uphill that needs to be acquired for you to get the downhill enjoyment. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't see how you couldn't be burning off energy and be really chill after something like that. Just climbing straight up the side of a mountain. Will, <laughs> that'll calm, that'll calm <laughs> you down. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it does. It does help. It, it certainly helps. We're chatting today with David DeFazio. David is uh, out of Jackson, Wyoming, co-founder of Wyoming Whiskey. And uh, here's a story I, I, I'm dying to get to. Let, talk to me about this chapter of your career. So whiskey. Why whiskey? And how did you come to uh, develop this company uh, with your partners? Well... Brad Mead and Kate Mead, husband and wife, uh, had hired me to work in their law firm back in the fall of 1996. Brad's mother had suffered a tragic accident earlier that year uh, that took her life and on horseback, and it was tr very tragic. And I think I walked into their office on the right day under unfortunate circumstances where they were up to their eyeballs and work both in their law firm and on the ranch. I ended up working with them for three years and then having kind of outgrown my position there, I went on my own and started my own law firm. And from that point on, I would say that Brad and I became much better friends because we weren't working together. They became kind of a second family to me. And when they sold a large piece of property in Jackson for, I don't know the, the amount, but a considerable amount of money. They bought a property in Kirby, Wyoming, so that they could winter their cattle over there and have it on winter range. Hmm. Well, I was about two years after that, Brad called me and said, Hey, Kate and I have a proposal for you. Come on over to our office. So I headed over and it was June of 06. And I walked into his office and it was this old, one of the oldest uh, houses in Jackson where their office was. And it was creaky. And I have tremendous Catholic guilt. So I walk <laughs> into their office and I, I sit down. And Kate comes in behind me, slam, not doesn't slam, closes the door, which sounds like a slam because of the type of building. And Brad looks at me and after a long pause says, Kate and I have decided we want to make bourbon. To which I, like, in kind of, getting rid of all of the stress that I had leading up to that moment, I laughed. I'm like, oh, that's it? I, you know, I didn't do anything wrong here? I said, how the hell do you make bourbon? And he <laughs> said, that's for you to figure out. Wow. And I was like, what, what do you mean? He said, well, Kate and I will fund the endeavor, and we want you to figure out how to do it. And this isn't an, a hobby project. This is something where we want we want it to be profitable. So you need to tell us if it will be, and uh, hmm. we'll go from there. And so that's how it all got started. And my head, as you can imagine, started spinning. And like, how do I approach this? And I 
took it on very much like a lawyer would, you know, it's like, well, here's the issue. So what do I need to learn about it? And next thing I know, Brad and I were at the Kentucky bourbon festival <laughs> and we had some connections, you know, through folks here in Jackson. And we had a, an audience with a, a gentleman named Max Shapira of heaven Hill, uh, which is the largest family owned distillery in Kentucky. And, uh, he set us straight and said, don't do it. He said, it's going to cost three times as much, take three times as long, be three times as difficult as what you could possibly imagine. And Brad and I walked out of that meeting saying, well, screw that guy. <laughs> he said, he, we're, we're a threat to him. You know, he doesn't want us to do it. So we were, had that much more resolve to do it. But I'll tell you, Max was 100% right. And, uh, you know, Brad joked, he said, David, I wish I had just stroked you a check for a bunch of money and walked away from this thing because we've spent a hell of a lot more money than we ever imagined. And, uh, but I'm glad we've done it. So yeah. that's how it all got started. Wow. And, uh, I'm, and here we are. That's, that's not the normal way that you do a career change, right? <laughs> like that, that you talk about coming out of left field that, uh, must, must've taken a while to get your head around that. It did. No, without question. And, you know, I continued to, I have a law firm here in Jackson and with partners and, you know, we, I, I kept plugging along at that. But as I was doing that, I was, you know, working on the Wyoming Whiskey Project, which, yeah, it was the best opportunity I had to create something. Hmm. And when you have Brad Mead and his family heritage, you know, behind something like this, it, it certainly helps especially with a home field advantage here in Wyoming. And it just, it, it was there. His, his family history has, it's deep. His grandfather was a two term U S Senator and governor of the state. His brother wrapped up his second term as governor a couple of years ago now. And, you know, they're kind of the Kennedys of Wyoming. And so when I landed my job with them as a lawyer, it was really the luckiest day of my career because it opened a bunch of doors because of the instant credibility that I gained uh, from, you know, being associated with them. And, you know, after that, when he asked me to do the whiskey thing, I was like, of course, you know, it, it, it was my way of kind of contributing to the, the history of their family. And, you know, I hope that when this is all done, if whatever that means, that their family could look on Wyoming whiskey and say, this has been a tremendous addition, you know, to our legacy. Hmm. Yeah. Well said. I, I did read somewhere that, uh, the goal was, uh, making America's next great bourbon. Is that, uh, is that kind of your, your theme that you're, uh, you're going for here? It is. Uh, I, I'll never forget when, Brad, Kate, and I sat down in their living room with a uh, an easel, and we said, okay, we have to come up with a mission statement, and we have to come up with, you know, what's our goal? And that's what we came up with. We said, we want to make, we want to make America's next great bourbon, and we still are doing that. I, I think we've, we, we have done that. I think we have made America's next great bourbon, but we're not done. You know, we, we still want to be improving on what we're doing. We want to be improving upon what we're offering. You know, we don't want to be throwing 30 different products out on the market, but at the same time, we want to continue to keep people interested, 
both with the progress in our quality and doing things like specialty products. Like we do a Wyoming only release every year. That's kind of been my pet project from the beginning. Uh, we started with the eclipse when uh, the full solar eclipse happened and it ripped right through the middle of Wyoming. Hmm. That was our opportunity to come up with a product that, you know, could really capitalize on all the focus that Wyoming was getting. And then we built off of that. And it's, uh, it's a program that is something that focuses on a person, place, or a thing that is iconic to Wyoming. And so, you know, we come up with new things like that every year and it's, uh, it's just, it's exciting to do these types of things. So, you know, that's where we're at right now. Yeah. Good stuff. What's your favorite part about this career right now? Like if you had to say, is it, is it, I don't know if you're involved in, in, in a lot of the marketing or is it going into the lab and doing some trials? What do you look forward to most in your day to day? I like new product development because I, I've got a, I'm not a scientist. I'm not our master distiller. I'm not, you know, our master blender, but I love the information that I get from all of the experts that we have in these positions. And so I like to take all of that in and then say, okay, with what we have to work with, here's where I think we should move and what we should offer next. Like for me, that that's the most exciting part because, you know, we have thousands of barrels of whiskey aging. And when you have somebody like Nancy Fraley, who, you and I could have a conversation about her for an hour by itself. She is able to, she gives us information about what we have in stock that really provides us the opportunity to do exciting things. Hmm. And so um, I appreciate the expertise that we have on our team and being able to take all of that, assimilate it and then say, okay, here's the direction where I think we should go. And sometimes I'm right. Sometimes I'm wrong. Sometimes I get shot down by Brad. Sometimes I get shot down by our partners at Edrington, which we could talk about if you'd like. But um, that's the fun part for me. And I could talk about Wyoming whiskey all day long. And I, I thoroughly enjoy and appreciate the opportunity to visit with you about this. But I, I think if you had to, if I had to identify one thing, it would be developing the next product that people are going to enjoy. Yeah, I can relate to that. I'm, I'm, you know, in the wine business, but it's, it's a very, it's those processes, you know, when you're sitting down, whether it's your sales and marketing team or in the, and the higher ups in the company, it's like, we want to go, we want to make this type of product. What do we need to do it? Where do you source, you know, the ingredients from what's the packaging going to look like? Um, what kind of price point you're going to be at? I, I actually get really excited about that stuff too. I, I can totally relate to that. Yep. You're creating something. And, yeah. and that's for me, no, there's nothing more fulfilling than that. And you just hit the nail on the head. It's okay. How are we going to make it? Then what label are we going to put it under? And then what's going to be the marketing program that's going to be behind it. So it's, mm-hmm. it's fun to do that from, from beginning to end. For sure. Um, so what's going on with, with the whiskey company these days for new and exciting? Like, let's talk about, let's talk about the whiskeys that you are making. And then maybe you can tell me you just had a great day on the Teton and it's kind of your wind down time. What's the perfect whiskey from Wyoming whiskey at the end of the day? 
I can answer that question as far as what I think the perfect whiskey is, but I, I would never be so arrogant as to say that it's the perfect, perfect whiskey for everybody because everybody has a different flavor profile that they like. Mm. But if you're asking me, I just got off the river, whatever river that might be, and, and I want to have a, a bourbon with a friend or five, uh, I would go to our Wyoming-only release. Um, this year it was called Thunder Basin, and it is a mid-90 proof, you know, 95 to 98, 99, depending upon the season, um, product that is really, in my opinion, the heart of what Wyoming whiskey is. It, these are barrel. So this past season, for instance, it was a 12-barrel batch of what we would call our, our B profile which is middle of the warehouse in, in high, like we have six ricks high and barrels that are maturing on the bottom rick are going to be slightly softer, not as spicy, caramel, orange, vanilla. Top of the warehouse is going to be everything you're going to, from the bottom and middle of the warehouse, but it's also going to have all spice, cinnamon, those types of spices that you're not going to get from the lower part of the warehouse. I personally like the middle part of our warehouse where you're getting some richer flavors coming in. Uh, the leather, the sandalwood, the, mm. um, the nutty, darker fruit type of flavors. And so what I have targeted has, for our Wyoming Lily release, release has been somewhere around a dozen barrels that Nancy selects that have excellent quality and have that flavor profile that we're looking for. I'd call it our small batch on steroids or a richer version of our small batch. And small batches are our flagship product. And that to me is really the epitome of what Wyoming whiskey is. I, I could drink that all the time, every day, because I just think it, it's a superb product. So that would mm. be my pick. Love it. And just... You know, for the layman that's maybe not into um, making their own whiskeys, which is, I assume, a lot of people, How? why is it different flavors from different, you say, the low section, the middle section, the high section? Does that have to do with evaporation? Is it the type of oak you're using? What, what would attribute that to? Primarily heat. Hmm. So in, in our warehouses, let's say we're you and I are standing in our warehouse on July 31st. When we walk in at the base, you know, on the ground, it's probably going to be about 95 degrees where we're standing. Hmm. If we walk up the ladder and go to the top of the warehouse, it's going to be as high as 135 degrees. And so that heat difference or disparity is going to have profound impacts on how the whiskey ages within the barrel. And so, at the top of the warehouse, that heat is going to push that whiskey deeper into the wood and it's going to pull out different flavors than it does at the base. Oh, okay. And so uh, one time Steve Nally, who was our first distiller, he was from Maker's Mark. He'd been with him for 33 years and came to us and really got us some instant credibility when it came to the bourbon making world. He explained it to me as David, you can, you know, when you age whiskey at the base of the warehouse, you know, it's going to take a longer in order to get it matured. And the top might be somewhat faster. He goes, but that's not necessarily a good thing either way. 
what they do at Maker's Mark is they will take bourbon from the top of the warehouse that has been cooking, as he likened it to chili. Mm-hmm. He's like, a good chili is you're going to cook all the ingredients together, but once you're done cooking it, you want to simmer it, and you want to let it simmer for a long period of time. So at Maker's, they rotate their barrels. They take it from the top of the warehouses where they've been cooking for three, five years, right. and then they bring it to the bottom, and they let it simmer for a period of time, and it mellows it. And so you, if you kind of think about that and what the parts of the warehouse do to it, you could understand how it's going to impact the whiskey a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And so that, that intense heat at the top of the warehouse is going to make it probably, you know, more a more intense flavor in the whiskey. It brings out the spice more than anything. And then the bottom of the warehouse is going to be a little more mellow. It's not going to have that intensity to it. And it's going to be a little easier drinking, if I can yeah. go that far, uh, as far as what the flavor profile is. Well, that makes total sense. You're going to extract more, obviously, with the warmth. It's also probably, I would think, the evaporation process, you know, a little bit. Um, I, I would imagine up higher, it probably evaporates a little more, especially at warm temperatures. Hmm. You may be right on that. And, and I've never, we've never looked into that facet of it. But I can tell you that one of the biggest concerns that we had here when we started was this is a very arid environment where our distillery is, and it's not nearly as humid as it is in Kentucky. And so we were worrying about losing a lot of whiskey to the evaporative process, which we call the angel share. And luckily we haven't because we have metal buildings that are, are warehouses, so you don't have wood that is is porous. So this is, again, this is all speculation on my part Mm -hmm. and our company's part, but when you have wood barns that you're aging whiskey in, it's much more porous. We have a metal sided building with concrete floors. You don't lose as much the evaporation as you might with the porous wood. So that's one of the things that we have attributed to that, that we didn't lose that much on. And secondly, we also will wet the concrete floors periodically in order to keep the humidity up in the warehouses so that we don't lose as much. Yeah, sure. That angel share, very familiar with that in the wine business. But it's the same thing. I always, I had this theory and same thing, can't prove it, but basically with the wine, the water evaporates. So the alcohol actually goes up and you do get some more concentrated flavors. I think it's also an added benefit of barrel aging anything, but um, yeah, it's interesting. Love it. Um, let, let's get back to the water. I, I, you know what I want you to do is walk us through your perfect day. So if you had to paint us a picture, David, of your dream day on your favorite stretch, you know, is there a coffee in the morning? What kind of species are you chasing? What kind of flies are you throwing? Paint us a, a little picture of what that might look like. Well, I'll tell you, this would be my perfect day and I haven't had this day in a very long time. Uh, I would, I would wake up here at my house early, very early. I'm not a coffee drinker. Um, you wouldn't like me on coffee. You could talk to my office manager and she would agree with that. Um, I, I wake up pretty easily and and I, I get going pretty easily. So I've never needed it. And so I would wake up here. I would have kind of your traditional breakfast. I would have a, I, I like having two or three eggs over easy. Uh, with some wheat toast, 
and I like having some smoked salmon for breakfast. I tried to get, I've gotten away from bacon. Uh, everybody loves bacon, number one me, but uh, I've tried to get away from that for health reasons. And I really like smoked salmon for breakfast. And I love orange juice. Like the better the orange juice, the better. That's my coffee in the morning. It's just absolutely love it. So then I would drive up to Yellowstone. I would get out of here super early. And I would get up to the Yellowstone River in the park. And I would fish for cutthroat with dries um, and spend a day up there. And, you know, the, the Yellowstone cutthroat have had a, quite a, a resurgence as a result of the lake trout eradication that has been undergoing for the last few years, which I know is a, a hot topic with some people, but as a result, we're definitely seeing our, our Yellowstone cutthroat populations come back really strong. And in visiting with some friends of mine recently who have been up there, they said, this has been one of the best years they've had in probably 10 years. So I would really, really enjoy being there and just the tradition and the history of the Yellowstone River and being in the park, it's just, it's different. You know, I, I don't know how else to put it. You can't float that river. You have to wade it and you have to be committed. And uh, I, I would do that. And then whenever I was done, I would head back into town and get into the very long traffic line that is, you know, Yellowstone Park people, you know, that are coming back into town. And, and then after that, I don't really care what happens. Well, there's obviously going to be a little whiskey at the end of the day. Now, that's the, what is it, the Wyoming selection, or what did you call it? Uh, yes, I w- yes, I'd probably have Thunder Basin in my flask, and I would have enjoyed that uh, towards the end of the day, and uh, yeah, I that would be part of it as well, and especially when I got home, you know, that would be something I would make, and, and if anything, I would probably make myself a cocktail. Um, I'm currently hot on whiskey sours, an egg white sour. Hmm. Uh, that's my, my, has been my drink for the past month, I would say. So I would probably make myself a double of that and I would sit down and uh, tune into whatever was the show or news or whatever that was on and, hmm. and call it good. Sounds pretty good to me. And, so, and have an antelope steak. If, you, if I had to pick, I would have a perfectly cooked antelope backstrap with some wild rice a great salad um and that that would be the perfect meal for me do you guys do a lot of um whiskey food pairings like as far as like say dinners or uh i mean that's obviously huge in in other alcohol uh beverage industries but is that something you guys do we do we do a lot of whiskey tastings just by itself and then we have been involved in a number of dinners where Wyoming whiskey is paired with different courses. And I will say that it's, it is a difficult task for a chef to pair food with whiskey. And that's because whiskey is such an overpowering product that it's hard to be drinking whiskey while you're eating and have one complement the other. So when I have met the chefs that have been able to do that properly, it's impressive. It's not like a wine pairing dinner. You know, as you know, being in the industry, you could pair wine to, to meals, I think, um, I don't want to say easily because that, that would be misleading, but you could do it more easily than whiskey. 
because again, whiskey just overpowers the palate. And so, um, one of the, I can't remember the exact dish that I had, but it was in orange County, California. They had our double cask, which is our, our bourbon finished in Pedro Jimenez sherry casks paired with a very particular dessert. And I was blown away at how they complemented each other. Hmm. Uh, that to me is the one meal that stood out to me as being the best pairing that I've ever seen. But more often than not, I think you'll find like a great steak being paired with one of our great whiskeys. And that a great steak can hold its own against a whiskey. Whereas a lot of other, like you would never want to have a light fish with whiskey because mm-hmm. it would just get dominated. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, we've done pl- we've done plenty of that. When you said um, backstrap uh, antelope with wild rice, I'm thinking that sounds like you did that at a dinner one time. <laughs> That's where my head went. <laughs> but uh, it sounds pretty. good. I do it at my house. Ah, uh, okay. When we've had when we've had folks from Edrington come in, who is our partner, um, three years ago we entered into a partnership with Edrington. Uh, they bought uh, a, por- a minority share in our business. And what that did was allow us to have distribution nationally. Uh, Edrington owns McAllen Scotch along with Highland Park and Glen Rothes. Mm. And, you know, when, you, when you're in the same portfolio as McAllen, you have the opportunity to get into about anywhere because of the leverage that that allows. And so the folks from Edrington have been out here frequently. And uh, when I have them up to my house, I will pull out. Uh, some of my best cuts of either antelope or elk and uh, serve that alongside whiskey. And uh, that's always been a crowd pleaser. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. As somebody that's been fly fishing for so long, you know, you come through Erie, Albany, Jackson, you're covering a lot of different, uh, you know, different regions of the States. Um, Is there anything you see as a group fly fishers maybe should be doing differently. Is there anything that kind of irks you uh, about what's going on or are we just kind of in, in good stead right now? I think rivers are being over outfitted in my opinion. Mm. Um, There's so much pressure being put on these rivers commercially that, and privately, but I don't know how you would ever regulate the private fishing side of it. To me, I just see, you know, these rivers are getting pounded out west. And, you know, these companies, and I can't blame the companies that are doing it because they're out to make a living off of it. And if it's the outfitter or if it's the guides, that's their livelihood. So, you know, don't hear me to say that they should stop doing what they're doing because that's not what I'm saying. But it just seems like there needs to be more attention paid to the number of commercial boats that go down a river on a given day, because, you know, these folks are fishing with guides that know exactly what to use and they're catching these fish over and over again and really beating on rivers. And in my opinion, just my personal opinion, not the opinion of anyone in my company or anybody else that I know, I just wish that there would be a closer look taken and, Maybe that look would say, David, you're dead wrong. It's not the commercial outfitters that are causing the problem. It's private or it's something else entirely. But I just see here on the snake, for instance, 
the number of boats that are launching every day that go down the Snake River to beat on a trout population that is not huge to begin with, it really it uh, it sacrifices the quality of the fishing experience. Hmm. And so, you know, it, it forces me to say, you know, I'm not going to fish the snake, you know, unless it's the shoulder seasons, like early spring or late fall. Uh, I'm probably going to go out and fish the snake this weekend because most people are gone now and, you know, it's not getting the same pressure. Yeah. But um, that would be the one thing that I would look at is, you know, how are we managing these trout populations and, you know, do we need to make a change or not? Yeah. And uh, that would be my question. I, and I'm not saying I'm an authority because I'm not. Mm. I mean, I, none of us are authorities at the end of the day. There's so much more information we could all learn, but that would be my one my one focus area. I think that's, more uh, than any. that's very well verbalized. Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time today, David. I've really enjoyed chatting with you. We should maybe do another follow-up at some point in the future, talk more whiskey, or maybe you uh, want to chat about a fishing trip you've been on, something like that. But um, before we let you go, I just want to make sure, so um, if we're looking for, uh, you know, Wyoming whiskey at our, you know, our, our favorite liquor outlet, or uh, where, where is, is it widely available across most of the U.S.? Yes. It, at this point, you can get Wyoming whiskey in all 50 states. Um, it's not always a listed product with distributors in those states, but it, it can be a special order. But I would say more often than not, your favorite liquor store, bar, or restaurant could ask our distributor to bring it in, and it's no problem. Um, we are carried by a distributor in every state, and it's just the, in the when you get into the details of it, you know some of the states that were not as um, well represented. I mean, pick Mississippi. I, it, we're not focusing on Mississippi, but you can get Wyoming whiskey there. Mm. Yeah. So you could get it in all the states, and then you could also go online and you could get it at uh, Flaviar, Reserve Bar, uh, and some of those other out online resources um, that could have it delivered right to your door. Good stuff. Well, keep up the good work with Wyoming Whiskey, uh, your your attorney uh, at law, and also um, all your time on the water. Uh, thank, thanks so much for spending some time with us on the show today. Well, I'm happy to come back, and uh, next time I will have some better audio, I promise you, sir, and uh, we'll take it from there. But, yeah, let's do it again, and uh, I think probably most importantly I need to make sure that I get a bottle of of our Wyoming only release in your hands so we can share one over the uh, airwaves. We've been chatting today with David DeFazio out of Jackson, Wyoming. He is co-founder of Wyoming Whiskey, and their goal is making America's next great bourbon. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com. Thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water. Mm-hmm.